All right. Welcome back to another episode of Friends from Work. This is a podcast about all things in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it's a podcast that's hosted by me, Kyle Sconowell, and my currently injured friend, Robbie Earl. So a couple updates here from us. One, Robbie is doing really well, which is really awesome. Uh, thank you from me, from Robbie, and from Candice for all of the thoughts, the prayers, the kind words on social media, on Slack, uh, messages to us. It means so much to both Robbie and I. He will not be here for today's episode um, because he is on the mend, but he is doing well. This is surgery one of two, and he should be back next week. And uh, yeah, all good news to report there. He had a rib removed, and I think he's in some pain from the removal, but nothing else to be worried about. Everything seems to be looking good. So that's really fun. Because of that, we will not be ranking Quantumania today. We will find a week to rank and reflect on it, maybe next week, sometime soon. And so you will get an official ranking from both of us at some point, but it's not today. Today, though, is going to be extra fun because we did three separate interviews with different people that we wanted to put into today's episode that we're calling Quantumania Creators and Contributors because all of these people either directly helped create Quantumania or are a part of contributing to the character of Ant-Man. And so that's going to be really, really fun. few more updates here from me. Um, first of all, we're getting really close to Guardians of the Galaxy already. So Robbie and I have been working behind the scenes to structure out what the remainder of the spring looks like on Friends from Work. And we are going to be doing like a Guardians of the Galaxy mailbag where we answer some questions about it beforehand. We also have a saga so far coming up, including a friendly reminder uh, YouTube video like we did last time. Then you'll have our spoiler-free preview and our initial reactions of Guardians of the Galaxy all before you see it, and then we will have the typical ranking and reflecting. So all of that is coming up in March and April. And then I also want to tell you that we're really excited. In the next four weeks or so, we're going to start our rewatch journey of the Phase 4 films. So just like we did back in the day with the old-school rewatches, we're going to pick it up with, I think, rewatch 23 is the number it would be for WandaVision. Uh, rewatch 24 with WandaVision and uh, do one episode per project, just like we used to do back in the day with our old rewatches. So between now and Guardians, you have all those Guardians episodes. You'll have three rewatch episodes. And I tell you that because if you want to start rewatching phase four, to stay along with us, now might be a good time. And then Robbie and I are working on what this looks like, but we're trying to find a way to cover other projects as well, including The Last of Us and a movie or two uh, as they come up here. So that's what the spring is looking like. So today, the interviews, next week probably ranking Quantumania, and then all that stuff planned for the spring. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast if you don't already. We are so excited to have a bunch of new folks on board. Um, thank you to Apple and Spotify for promoing the podcast. 
We will be back in full force next week, like I said. But we are thankful to have you here and uh, have you listening. And if you're interested, we are kind of reworking what Friends From Work Plus looks like. And there are all different avenues now that you can subscribe to Friends From Work to get bonus content and to support our podcast and look for a few more places for that to be available in the coming weeks. So this is going to be a really fun spring, including reworking some of Friends From Work Plus as well. And we're excited to share some of those announcements as well. Okay, that's a lot of talking, uh, but we are excited to have you here. So we got a chance to interview Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing, who are writers of, well, they're actually major comic book writers of a ton of things. And as we started talking to them, we found it crazy at the timing of their work and how it relates to the MCU. They started writing about Kang and then Kang got announced in the MCU. So they are some of the best Kang writers there are. Then they are currently working on uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. And lo and behold, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 comes out in a few months. And they are working on a Captain America run in comics currently that features MODOK inside of the Captain America run. So what crazy appropriate people to talk to when researching all of those projects. So Robbie actually sat down with them and did like a 24 minute conversation. That was really fun. They're clearly engaging. Even if you don't like comics um, or don't read them, uh, you're going to like the interview. That was me. I don't read comics, but I really enjoyed listening to them. Well, that was 24 minutes long and basically talked about Kang and Quantumania. And you'll hear clips of that here. Uh, but then they ran out of time and they had to go and it was going so well that they asked if they could come back on. And so a week later they came back on and did like an hour and 10 minutes with Robbie and Candace as a comics corner episode. So right now that full length video is available on our friends from work plus side of things. And so you'll hear clips from that, but the whole version you'll have to check out on friends from work plus. But also if you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you know that both Robbie and I love music and especially me, I love me some Christoph Beck. Well, Christoph Beck is a friend of the pod. He's been on Friends From Work before, but I got a chance to talk to him a second time, and it was so much fun. So you're going to hear that 17-minute interview here in a second as well. Christoph Beck is the composer of the music from Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, but he also composed all the Ant-Man films, Hawkeye, and WandaVision. So very influential composer, in the MCU and personally one of my favorites. Since we had talked to him before, I really went into the weeds in this interview, into the musical weeds. Like we dove into half steps and pitch bends and all the nerdy stuff that goes into making a score. So I realized that that part of the interview won't be for everyone, but it was just so much fun for me to fanboy on a musical level and uh, kind of just geek out with him about some of the cool things he did for Quantumania. So Without further ado, let's jump into that interview from Christoph Beck. Thank you so much for listening. Stick around. I think you're going to enjoy it. And you'll hear Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing after this Christoph Beck interview. All right. Today, making his triumphant return is composer extraordinaire Christoph Beck. Christoph, welcome back to Friends from Work. And how are you? I'm doing great. It's great to be here again. Thank you, Kyle. Let's go. 
First off, congratulations on your release of Quantumania. We freaking Thank loved you. it, as always. Stoked. Thank you. Um, you're kind of becoming something of a MCU rarity now in that you are one of the few people that got a chance to compose all three films, a full trilogy in Ant-Man. And so I kind of want to start off by talking about the main theme first. Um, how has it evolved for each project. And when you got the pitch for Quantumania, obviously you want to evolve it to have it match the genre a little bit more, but you got to still keep it recognizable. And so what was that task like? And just take me through that process. Uh, yeah, thanks for asking that. It's a great question. Um, I'm very, very proud of that first uh, Ant-Man movie score, especially the theme. Um, it has endured um, and uh, it, it, um, there, there are aspects of it that I find really fun and delicious to return to. Uh, one of them is the fact that it's in an odd meter. It's in seven beats to the bar. Most music is in, uh, four or three. Um, and that is, uh, something that you hear in all three movies. And mm-hmm. that is a, um, is almost like a linchpin that I can return to and I can have fun with the theme in other ways, and the fact that it's it remains in that seven beats to the bar uh, means that there is automatically an element of recognizability, an element that tethers all the different versions that you hear it together. Um, and it's also a point of pride that I um, am completing a trilogy. Well, actually, we don't know if there will be a fourth one. True. Maybe there will, maybe there won't. But so far, the trilogy... Um, is is three movies, uh, not just because I get to play with the Ant-Man theme, but also because I get to um, continue to explore the the other themes for the other characters. We have mm-hmm. a theme for Hank, we have a theme for Janet, we have a theme for Hope, and um, these play more minor roles in the first two movies, um, actually, the second movie was when we really introduced Wasp as a main character, and that's what, you know we really featured her theme there. But there's this bedrock of, uh, uh, of, of musicality that I can build on, um, mm. and it, it it just means that when I revisit these themes in Quantumania, they have more meaning. They're already ingrained to some extent in the consciousness of the audience. And that just gives me more tools to play with. Um, in particular, the Ant-Man theme got a workout in Quantumania. Mm-hmm. It's the first movie where I had the opportunity to, um, to play it in the grand epic scale mm-hmm. that matches um, the grand epic scale of the film itself. Um, the, the first two movies were much more self-contained mm-hmm. uh, and dealt with themes, uh, story themes now that were a little bit smaller. Um, here we're, we're telling a story that is a much more, um, important story in the grand scheme of the MCU. And it presented me with an opportunity to widen my palette. So we have some really, uh, big and stately, uh, and and huge in terms of the orchestral forces um, that I brought to bear versions of the theme. We we also for the first time in this movie explore the romance between Scott and Hope, 
And mm-hmm. um, I got to explore what that Ant-Man theme might sound like in a romantic context. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, my current favorite version of the theme is the first track on the album and the uh, the piece that plays during the end, the big end credits piece where I got to do a very high energy, very intense version of the theme with a lot of uh, burbling electronics mm-hmm. um, that presented the theme in a, in a whole new light. Uh, on the theme still, chicken or the egg here, when you first wrote it, did you have to have the foresight of knowing, like, I can take these same progressions, these same melodies, stretch them out for a song like Honey, I Shrunk the Energy Core? Like, did you have to project that? Or did you now walk into Quantumania going, oh, I have this theme, how can I mess with it? Or like, you know, a couple times in the film, you strip it down to like just a Rhodes or something, and it's kind of supposed yeah. to be reflective. Did you have to piece that afterwards, or did you kind of have to project that when you first wrote it? Okay, the answer is egg. Actually, no, it's chicken. <laughs> hmm, I'm not really sure. But I can, I can answer the second part of your question, uh, which is no, I, I did not know. Um, I think as a composer... You um, you write what's in for what's in front of you, uh, and then when opportunities exist in future movies to expand on that material, you draw upon your skills as a composer. In my case, um, a lot of training and a lot of experience, uh, and uh, some some tools in my musical toolkit that enable me and I'm, um, you know, I can also say many of my colleagues um, Mm -hmm. to take just about any theme and depending on how you dress it up, the instrumentation, uh, the underlying rhythms uh, present it uh, in all sorts of different contexts, like the ones I I just mentioned. Um, It reminds me a little bit of uh, when I was scoring Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, for a few seasons um, where on a TV schedule, you're flying by the seat of your pants and there's a character that comes on. You don't know whether that character is going to become a main character in future episodes or not. You just write what's in front of you. True. And then if it turns out that it, that becomes uh, a, um, a major element, uh, then uh, you work with what you got. I want to compliment you for a second. Um, one of the reasons you're one of my favorites is the way you sonically handle the low end of your mixes in that um, I feel like a lot of film scores can tend to be pretty hollow, but whether it's the way you handle it in production with synth basses or program kicks, or if it's an engineering thing with close miking, or if it's just a mix thing that someone else is doing, I feel like your tracks always sound so full. And so thank you for that. I think it's one of the things that, uh, separates you, but also like blends the classical with the modern style so well. Is that conscious for you or just it happened? Well, first of all, thank you. That is a compliment. Uh, and I would say all the above. Um, production has always been something that's been very interesting to me. Um, I grew up listening to pop music and gravitated towards music that I could lie in bed when I was supposed to be sleeping, put on headphones and just um, revel in the ear candy of it. Um, well, and you can tell. Find, find details in the music that really got me excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a danger when you're as into production as I am that you 
um, lose sight of what's really important, which is the composition or in the, in the songwriting world, the, the actual song. Um, but, um, you know, I, I try to balance my attention so that uh, I make sure that the composition is solid. Um, and then the ear candy part um, uh, can, can serve to uh, support what is the, the, a strong core musically. Um, and as far, you know, as far as the low end goes, um, that's something I pay attention to Good. when I'm, when I'm mocking things up and it's something, uh, my engineer who I think is brilliant, Casey Stone knows is important to me. Um, and the way he, uh, the way he mics low percussion in the room, for example, mm-hmm. there's, there's always attention paid to capturing it in such a way that we have control over the low end when he mixes it. And it's also him who mixes it. And that's something that we, uh, we talk about and think about. Well, I can tell there's care put there. So I love that. Um, let's talk about Kang for a second. Take me through your process on writing his theme. And I have a follow-up question to that. And uh, kind of the thought behind all the pitch bending, like the meh yeah. stuff, which is so dope. Yeah. Thank you. Um, the, the pitch bend effect is something that I love exploring. There's a beautiful tension yes. when uh, there's, um, uh, uh, first of all, um, let me answer the first part of your question first, which is that my uh, initial approach to Kang was to write a more traditional villain theme, you know, something that could be bombastic, low brass, um, and with, uh, frankly, a lot of notes. Um, and when I started to apply this theme to scenes that Kang was in, it became clear that, um, the character, particularly the actor who plays the character, Jonathan Majors, he brings such an incredible intensity to his performance. Every scene he's in, he's magnetic. Um, it, it felt like too much. Um, he Mm. brings so much to that role. He does not need me to sit there and go, this guy's evil, this guy's dangerous, Correct. this guy's powerful. It's all there on screen. Um, so there was a process of simplification until I ended up with a very simple three-note motif that I could play with, playing with half steps. And for uh, those in your audience who maybe don't understand what I mean, a half step is the the two notes on the piano adjacent to each other. It's basically the closest two notes can be without being the same note. Playing with half steps opens up the possibility of playing with pitch bends, where instead of switching from one note directly to the next one higher, you slowly move it up and it creates this beautiful tension when you're in between notes. You don't quite know where you are as you're, as you're, um, feeling that tension mm-hmm. and then it resolves uh, onto its note. And I play with half steps up, I play with half steps down um, and, and slightly larger intervals as well. Uh, so Kang's theme was a process of simplification until it felt like I could let Jonathan's performance do the talking mm-hmm. and just be there to support it rather than tell the story. Um, and, uh, the, the pitch bend was just something that I realized could be done with that, that type of simple theme, um, and, uh, was very effective. I love that because his performance also has so much like humanity and mystery to it. And I feel like yep. what you ended on is the right thing. 
because yeah. it, it has that too. It didn't have to be like you said, oh my gosh, here comes the villain or something, you know? Exactly. I needed something that I could, um, that, that could be played very bombastically when he explodes in rage, but also, you know, when we first start discovering who this character is and, and how he came to be, um, there's a melancholy and loneliness to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was there ever any thought to playing off what Natalie Holt did in Loki at all with he who remains, or did you say, Hey, this is a variant. I want to do something totally fresh. It's a different character. Yeah. The latter, that's something we talked about early on in the process, me and the director, Peyton Reed. Um, I love what Natalie did in the Loki series. Oh, it's so good. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I really enjoy, um, playing my part to make um, uh, the uh, cohesiveness musically in the wider MCU. Mm-hmm. Um, and when there are opportunities, um, I've taken them to reference themes of other characters. Yelena uh, and Hawkeye. In the various Marvel projects that I've done. Uh, but we, And we talked about that. Um, and we decided, no, this guy is an entirely different character with an entirely different story and deserves his own sound and his own theme. And I imagine as we progress over the next few years telling the story um, of all the variants of Kang and, and um, all the multiverses these characters come from, um, I should say all the universes this character comes from in the multiverse, uh, that they will also have their own unique identities. Uh, two more questions. What's with the absolutely ridiculous titles and how fun <laughs> is that for you? I mean, things like 50 shades of Kang, honey, I shrunk the energy core. He Kang, he saw, he conquered. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll credit my dad for that. Um, my <laughs> that dad, sounds like a dad I joke. I grew up listening to my dad make absolutely horrible puns. And uh, that's something that has stayed with me uh, into adulthood. And it's, um, it's it's something that when when the tone of the film feels right, um, I dive into. In fact, there's <laughs> there's a whiteboard in my studio. Actually, it's not there anymore because I've moved since then. But there used to be a whiteboard in my studio, and a couple of weeks before the soundtrack titles were due, I would open it up to uh, my entire team and say, "Anyone who has any ideas for any fun titles, put them here." Um, and it's something we started about eight, 10 years ago. Uh, for those of your listeners who are interested, if you look at my social media, I did post a couple of photos of those whiteboards. I think we have one for uh, Frozen 2 up there, uh, <laughs> most of which were not used. Um, but, that is, but that is a really fun part of the process for me. The working titles we use, uh, composers working on these films, are really boring and utilitarian, and necessarily so. I need to look at a title for a cue and know what scene it is just from the title. Mm-hmm. But that also makes for a kind of boring track list. So I try to improve on them before oh. the soundtrack comes out. I love it. All right. Lastly, I'll get you out on this. Anything you want to tell our audience, what's next for Christoph Beck? What should they be looking for? What are you working on, et cetera? Well, I have Shazam Fear of the Gods coming out oh. in a few weeks. Okay. Um, I actually finished that well before I started on Quantumania uh, due to release schedule shuffles. Hmm. Um, it ended up coming out after. Um, and that's a very different feeling movie and a very different feeling score. Much more traditional um, and great fun. 
First of all, as always, he's so kind to join us on the podcast again. I love when we can have return guests to Friends From Work. He's officially a friend of the pod now. And that's so cool. That's so cool that I can say that as a fan of his music to say that he's a friend is so much fun. But how cool is that? I love it. If you haven't gotten a chance to listen specifically to what he did for Quantumania, even if you didn't like the movie, uh, go to Spotify and check out his work on Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. I think you're going to love it. Okay, and now, without further ado, let's dive into a few different clips from comic writers Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. And again, these are taken from different episodes. You'll have to subscribe to Friends From Work Plus to hear the whole thing. Otherwise, check out the first interview on YouTube in its entirety. So without further ado, enjoy this really engaging conversation with Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. And you have to write what Hmm. you know. And people are always getting confused by that. They think write what you know means like, well, I'm a cop, so I got to write about cops. No, the write what you know means you know about heartbreak. So you must write about heartbreak. And one of the things Jack and I do share is very complicated relationships with our fathers. Um, Very, you know... Sure, some good stuff, but a lot of toxic stuff and a lot of internalized, a lot of internalized bad, bad juice. Yeah, a lot of internalized bad juice. (laughs) And we realized like, so that was a story that we really, there was like a demon that we needed to get out of us. And we were talking about this and kind of circling back to kind of like, you know, my origins, like big time travel. How can we take this story and turn it into something large, Uh, which is kind of when we cross paths with Alana Smith. Uh, and kind of uh, over at Marvel, uh, she picked us up just kind of as guys. She really liked our work, Joyride. Yeah, studios. Yeah, we we'd been mm-hmm. talking to her about like what we might do. We met the previous year, right before pandemic, 2019. We were like, we're going to start doing some work at Marvel because we'd been at DC. Uh, we had sort of mm-hmm. run out of runway there um, after the cancellation of Green Arrow. We were like, we really want to find some new horizons. Um, and we'd mm-hmm. always been huge Marvel fans. We'd gone to Marvel and been like, hey, Alana, will you please meet with us? She met with us. She pegged immediately. She was like, you guys would be really good for Steve Rogers. And we laughed. We're like, ha, 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 we'll never get to write Steve Rogers. That's insane. <laughs> um, but, like, so cool that you think that. And she asked us for some pitches. And we pitched a bunch of, like, really small ball stuff. Um, stuff that, like, mm-hmm. little, like, four-issue minis or, like, one-shots. Just stuff we thought would maybe go between the lines would feel like it would be added to the universe. And it was basically a pass across the board on all of that because either the characters were, were being used or because the stories just didn't mm-hmm. feel like it needed to happen. And so we were back then pandemic happened and here we are back in that conversation, just talking about what we would need to write about personally. And, uh, we come up with this story about, uh, time travel and about how one tries to avoid oneself and how uh, if your life was a time loop and was an inescapable time loop, not a time loop like a Groundhog Day, but a time loop like mm-hmm. you are going to constantly become the thing that messes you up. How do you mm-hmm. shake that toxicity? How do you shake that stuff, that, that, as we put it, that internalized bad juice that you're left with by your father, right? Um, mm-hmm. what, what does it mean to, in some ways, be your own father and recognize that a lot of that stuff that you put on your father is actually stuff that you are perpetuating? And I don't know which one of us said it, but I think we were literally just talking over the phone because we couldn't meet in person the whole pandemic. Right. So we we're just like pacing around our houses on the phone. Yeah. And uh, one of us goes, you know what? Or like what? Like, this would be such a better story if it was a Kang the Conqueror book because it just would work for Kang. Like this is just... This is wow. exactly what Kang goes through. And we were both like, well, yeah, but 
who's going to do a Kang the Conqueror book? And like, we just struck out of Marvel. Like, I don't know that's going to happen, but like, Nice, you know, it was a cool idea. Yeah, and we had just been like, mm-hmm. oh, well, all of us smaller characters we pitched had just got shot down. So, like, well, we're going to come back to them with an, a, a Kang book? Absolutely. Who cares about Kang? <laughs> and then Jonathan Majors. Like, literally, we turned in this wow. pitch. Jonathan Majors got cast, and we were like, kismet. Like, this is going to happen. And then two weeks later, we had a go book. Because not only did we mm-hmm. have a desperate personal desire to tell a Kang the Conqueror story about stuff that was very personal and real to us. But at the same time, Marvel had a, a an absolute need to produce Kang the Conqueror comics that could get people on board and get people on page for Quantumania. So it was kind of this perfect synergy between what the company needs and what the universe needs and what we needed. And I was just, um, yeah. I really just, we're, we're so lucky to have fallen into that framework so that only myself left to conquer uh, was able to get, mm-hmm. you know, produced and, and, and produced at the quality that it was. Wow, that's that was going to be my next question is because I, I believe the first issue of the series came out, what, a, a month or two after the Loki finale mm-hmm. when we would have gotten our first you know, sort, of peak month, of King, sort of yeah, I think the month after. Yeah. Well, and how's this for Kismet? Because obviously, you know, we're like, oh, Jonathan Majors, like Kang is going to be a big deal. Amazing. What what delightful Kismet for this book coming out. And then the first episode drops. And, you know, even though we're in the Marvel family, it's not like we get preview screenings or anything. So we were mm-hmm. watching Loki 1 with everyone else. And then Ravana shows up. And we're like, holy, yeah. like, and we, you know, like, you cannot tell a story about fathers without telling a story about the women who make them, right? Like, it is a, really about how you define yourself, about how you, who you fall in love with is so important. So Ravana was huge to our story mm-hmm. and then and talk about like no offense to her but like d-lister i mean not a character that many people yeah. know when we yeah. put, when we initially pitched the book ravana wasn't a huge part of it and then the more that we dug into the actual origins of the character yeah. reread the fiction the more that we were like well ravana's kind of the key to the whole character like if you don't have ravana kang doesn't make a lot yeah. of mistakes that he makes he blames a lot of it on kang but it's actually ravana and, and, and his desire to be this person for her that he doesn't know how to be like, Oh man, this is a, this is a story. So we put Ravana in the book, but we're like, man, mm-hmm. I hope people access this. Cause who knows who Ravana is. And then suddenly Ravana's on television. Yeah. And yes. And again, talk about excellent casting. Oh my God. I know. I, mean, I know yep. we were, uh, we were thrilled. Um, and I mean, Jeez. so, but then of course, several weeks later, he who remains shows up. Mm-hmm. And we are once again treated to a big surprise um, and suddenly realize why it is that Marvel has dated Kang the Conqueror number one when it has, right? They know, but we don't. Okay. So the mm-hmm. kismet of that book doesn't, I don't think that happens in, in a vacuum. I think that happens in in the room of very clever people who know how they're ordering the universe and know how they're building mm-hmm. this fiction out. Um, we just happened to be the recipients of that because we had yeah. this Kang thing ready to go and it was it was sort of properly established to do that. So that was a really lovely um, additional bit of kismet for us to suddenly see the beginning of Majors' portrayal of this character yeah. and such a iconic immediately portrayal of it anyway. Oh, man, like, yeah. Immediately we went back to tables and we were like, oh, I want to write his Immortus. Like, oh, I love this <laughs> character. Um, it was a blast. So, yeah, very, very cool to see. Man. Well, did you did you have any any takeaways? You know, we've talked some about what what drives them. I, I love what you're what you're saying about kind of these cycles of, of toxicity and 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 like the way that that factors into our own relationships and how we see that mirrored. I mean, my my wife and I uh, we we read this for our, our comics corner episode and kind of talked about it. And I love that you're talking about 
coming to the story as someone that's read a lot of King comics versus none, because that's she and I, um, in, in this context, I'm curious, you know, again, having spent all the time you have now with the character, uh, as people are looking at, you know, not just a, a film with Kang, but also, you know, a whole, you know, saga really Thanks, that, yeah. that Marvel Studios has told us is, you know, g- going to be pretty rooted in majors, uh, performances. What do you think, uh, really makes Kang the Conqueror such a, a special character and such a, you know, pardon the pun, timeless Marvel villain. Um, I really so, didn't plan that. I'm sorry. No, no, it was, but it was beautiful. You're good at this. Um, <laughs> I think there's something really interesting about Kang, and it comes back to kind of our original concept, which is these um, cycles of, of toxic abuse, effectively. Um, and the idea mm-hmm. that you can be incredible, like there's, there are a few things more sympathetic than a young man, young person, faced with the challenges of their parents, faced with the world that has turned against them and telling them that they cannot be the best version of themselves, right? Something that's holding you down and saying, you can only be small and, or rather, or you can only be cruel, right? You can only be this. Mm. And then for you to rail against that, like that is the every hero's journey. But Kang doesn't learn the lesson, right? Kang cannot get Mm. out of his own way. And that kind of egoism, that drive to, that that chip on his shoulder that pushes him to be the best version of himself is exactly what pushes him back to the very man that he never wanted to be, right? And I think that's the difference. That's a villain turn, Mm. right? And that's the core, no matter how, when he succeeds, by succeeding, he proves himself to be a cruel, a a villain, right? And that's not Mm. a judgment necessarily, it's a tragedy. And I think that's the key is like, he is a tragic figure. And in that tragedy becomes cruel, which is endlessly fascinating. Kang is a person. Kang isn't just a person. I guess Kang is a bunch of people. Sure. All of whom are written across time, screwing one another over. Hmm. And I think they all have the best of intentions. I think they want to be good people. I think in, 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 a, in a vacuum, we're proven this by Iron Lad. By a character who is mm-hmm. playing at the very beginning of his moral compass, before the, before the first act of great cruelty is done to him, where his throat is slit, right? Which is where we pick him up mm-hmm. in our book. Our book is effectively the third volume of Young Avengers, because um, mm-hmm. we really are picking up with, with that Kang, right? But mm-hmm. that Kang, at his, at his initial origin, he chooses heroism. And the only reason he can't stick mm-hmm. to it is because Kang has already made those bad choices and that by making those bad choices, they have written them into the time stream. And so Iron Lad can't stay Iron Lad. He has to become Kang because otherwise the time stream mm. will collapse. So like the entire universe has been written against this man who's trying desperately to push out of it. And he thinks it's the universe that's doing it. And it's not, it's yeah. him. It was always him. And like, wow, what, what a villain turn. To, to realize that it's not other people misusing resources or someone who doesn't love you back or any, no, it's just it's you, him. man. Yeah. It's, he's the problem. It's him. Man, man will go to therapy. <laughs> man will time travel a hundred times before going to therapy. That's <laughs> and the conqueror. Yeah. yeah. And I really do think it's like, it's just, he's more relatable than, even though he's a big, I'm a bastard, mm. Parker Dooney and crazy. He's to me, the most relatable villain in the, in the, in the Marvel canon. Cause he's, he's just, he just wants to be a good person. And I think MCU mm. 
Kang, we are going to get a lot more of the potential heroism of this character. They're going to really be able mm-hmm. to unpack the good man he could be. Like, obviously, he is still going to have many, many villain turns. But, like, I, I'm mm-hmm. very excited to see what they do with that character. And we, when, when we've already seen it with He Who Remains, which I think is yeah. really cool, right? But just knowing that He Who Remains, as a fundamental concept, says Kang solved Kang. He solved it. Hmm. Kang solved Kang by locking away Kang and putting himself into a space where he he had to be alone for the rest of time and kind of go insane and like be a mortis, mm-hmm. but he could keep the sacred timeline going. Which is correct, by the way. If yeah. you are, if you are, if you cannot escape the toxicity of your own life, if everything you touch turns to <laughs> shit, the only ethical thing to do is to remove your, like, step away from things where you cannot rot wow. what is around you. And it's such a great place to start that Kang, because it means it's all downhill. Yeah. yeah. Like, he's already solved the problem. Wow. And they've, and, and then they, re, you know, Loki has reopened the problem. So now that the problem is right. Loki, nah! So it, it creates well, and, and, so cool, man. Yeah. He's even, he's even trying to, to do that even further by handing over the, the reins to Loki and Sylvie and, and fully take himself kind of off the board. Yep. Yep. And then obviously that doesn't, yeah, that doesn't, doesn't, work doesn't out. work. Doesn't work. <laughs> Turns out people don't like it when you tell them what to do. It's, it's the, again, Man. because even there, Kang is wrong, right? He's just, he's still, he knows there's a, there's a fundamental aspect of him that needs that control. Um, even when he's giving it away. And so a question that I had, and you know, I've, I've talked about this some with our listeners just because, Whenever I, I say, okay, read this book, and then they go to Marvel Unlimited, you're kind of confronted with, okay, I can, I can find just the straight digital version of this book, or I can read it in this format. And I've never gotten to talk to a creative team that has seen their, their book uh, transferred into that format. And I was curious if there's any input on y'all's end, because y'all's was particularly unique, I thought, in that you have kind of the text block and then you'll get some of Carlos's art and then the text block. And uh, you are informing me of something that I'm unaware of. It, it, oh. did, they, did they turn our book into an infinity book? They did. Wow. Yeah. I so did not know I, that. And, and, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to y'all is because it's a pretty big, it's a pretty big change. Um, and I wound up reading it both ways. But yeah, if you've got your phone out, you can go take yeah, a look. Yeah, it's, I'm going uh, to look at this right now. That's actually yeah, it's, really exciting. Good for them. It, it's really so one thing that I, I really liked is, you know, and, and I'll be curious to hear Carlos's thoughts as well. Like often I think books are just set up to where it's easy to make it like a vertical scroll. But y'all's there's yeah. so many kind of big splash pages. Yeah. They had to get creative. Um, and I, I think, in, you know, I like having read both. So it's hard for me to say I do like how it really kind of focuses in on bits of the writing there. Um, and then on the art. So it, it almost feels like you're reading a, you know, like an old school right, picture like a, book. Right, like, like, like a picture book or a saga. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Not like saga like the comic, like saga like the Vikings. Right, that's, right. Uh, that's really cool, actually. Like, sorry, you're blowing my mind right now. Uh, I, <laughs> oh, yeah, look at that. Trending title. What a, what a, there you go. What a Man. trip. And there we are. This is so cool. Thank you for letting us know this. <laughs> oh, no. Of co- yeah, I, I just thought, for, you know, from a creative standpoint, it's so interesting. So I'm sure you, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of thought that goes into the exact presentation of this there, stuff. And there then I, is. There know. is. I'm, I'm glad that it turned out good. There is part of me that's like, and I mean, obviously, we're writers, right? So it's like we don't have mm-hmm. as much ownership. But I imagine, I mean, we have incredible ownership. But I imagine if you're an artist, that might tweak your right. a bit. Um 
And, you know, every yeah. page is really carefully crafted. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. oh, this is actually dope as hell. Oh, <laughs> oh. What? Oh, sh- They did the whole... Yeah. I haven't it's done crazy. the Infinity Scroll Ooh, this yet. This is crazy. This is really <laughs> cool. Now I'm Sorry, so I'm glad that... Geeking out about that. that uh, That's a horizontal panel yeah. that they verticaled. Wow. It leads you down to Castle Doom. And how neat, because it's just like, I mean, I'm sure reading it this way just takes forever, which is cool, right? Like, yeah, well, live here. This actually kind of it's, solves my main, you know, you know, you know, I always like, I hate reading myself after it's done. Like, I always have to take time away from our uh-huh. work because when we read it afterwards, I, I'll have like that thing where I'll be like, oh, I wish I'd cut that line or like, oh, I wish mm-hmm. we did <laughs> Right. And with Kang, my whole thing is always like, we purposely overwrote it like it is overwritten mm. on purpose which normally you don't mm. do but because it's kang it like it's I, we similar how we write uh we write spock over in uh star trek yeah IDW. right uh, you like, use 50 words where you should use two some right? characters just <laughs> soliloquy right that's just part of the natural natural thing but this actually lets Oh, that's so dope! It lets the <laughs> writing sit on its own, which mm-hmm. yeah. feels less overwritten because it's happening in panels. Sorry, you're getting like my moment-to-moment realization on that. That's oh, I, I love, I love this. <laughs> I'm so glad. I, I thought that this was going to be a, a, a boring question, and now I, no. I love it. No, it's really no, that's... wild. I mean, yeah, seeing this, though, I can imagine that an artist would lose their <laughs> right. mind by the amount of like, right. post-production that is going into this, but as just a raw storytelling thing, like, this is cool. Uh, it's cool. out there, go ahead. Obviously, uh, here's what I'd say. Go buy the physical book. There it is, yep. Go buy the physical... Oh! oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is really this is cool! Really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna go read the book yeah, in this format. No, I, I honestly, that's what happened. I read it, you know, I had read it before to, for, for when we recommended it, reread it, and then saw that they had released the Infinity and was checking that out and then wound up rereading it again because I was like, this is a whole different experience. It's to Colin's point, completely though, completely different. Wow. I yeah. do think you need to read it that way and the physical way because I felt the, the way the pages are laid out is really beautiful. Yeah, no, it's it, I, I read it physical first. Yeah, I mean the, the issue coming out, the next issue of Captain America after uh, the the release of Quantumania, which has gotten all Twitter talking about Modok, you know, for good or for bad. Yeah, uh, is got Modok on the cover, so yeah, yeah, you got a lot into the mind of Modok. Uh, yeah, we're <laughs> and and it is and it, and it is very much like our. I think you're going to see a real counterpoint to Quantumania Modok, which is sure. I, I'm really excited about. Like the the thing we wanted to do with Modok was that he has been a joke for a long time for good reason. He's very silly mm-hmm. looking and his power set is very scary next to how silly he is. So that's like, it really works. But like, I think in a lot of people's minds, Modok is the Patton Oswald version or right. now this new Quantumania version. Uh, Darren, right? Like there's all that's <laughs> like, that's really what we're like getting out of Modok these days. Um, but the thing about Modok is that if you take the silly personality off of him, Mm-hmm. He's a, he's sort of a classic Universal Monsters character. He's, he's designed only for killing. Yeah, he is a scary, <laughs> he is a scary murder machine with a really enormous brain. 
And, like, that mm-hmm. should be scary. And it can be off-putting and unsettling more than it can be funny. And so we, in, yeah. in an effort to kind of, like, like share with the ex-office, who are obviously using him to great effect, mm-hmm. we thought, what a great place to reveal our final star point, right? We have these star points who, who the Outer Circle used to... to shaped the last century. Bucky was one of them. Peggy was one of them. The Redacted, one of our new allies, was one of them. Um, Destroyer uh-huh. was one of them. And uh, and lo and behold, here is uh, our last one, MODOK. And we were like, what if it wasn't the one who needs... Oh, Buffy. Um, what if it wasn't all the killing that we that, that was so scary about him? What if we had a sub-personality that even MODOK didn't know about that operated independent mm-hmm. of MODOK and was not about killing you, but was about controlling you. It was about keeping you in the box at the outer circle. So, like, all these other guys, they kill you if you step outside. Uh-huh. The one where it's like, oh, we can't kill you. What we can do is just cut that little part out of your brain, and you'll never notice. Uh-huh. Right? And that, that idea of lost time, of, like, the scariness of an alien. Of yeah, it's actually kind of terrifying. It's right. chilling. <laughs> and applying that to MODOK. And then being like, hey, Carmen, you know how you love to draw, like, hot people? How about you draw the scariest MODOK? The grossest, yeah. scariest little Modoc you can, uh, and uh, and she, yeah. she really took that and ran with it. So it's it's been a it's been a real uh, it's been a real pleasure. So much fun! I thought that was really cool to hear them freak out about when Robbie revealed that their comic is now available on Marvel Unlimited in the Infinity Scroll thing. What a cool little bit there! Special moment. Hope you guys enjoyed that. They have become very influential to the MCU and to how Kang is perceived, and so. I think it's perfect timing with Ant-Man and the Wasp and Kang Dynasty coming up. So like I said, thank you guys so much for listening. We have so much going on this spring. I can't even tell you how many ideas we have. And as soon as Robbie heals up a little bit more, we're going to have so many fun things to present. It's going to be an awesome spring as we ramp up towards Guardians of the Galaxy. And then, by the way, as a side note, once Guardians of the Galaxy is over, we won't have very much time before we get back into the weekly rhythm of Secret Invasion and a new show on Disney+. Plus. Again, if you are interested in our YouTube channel, check that out, the FFW Podcast. Uh, we're trying to grow the video side of things, so subscribe to us over on YouTube. Follow, subscribe to this podcast. Tell your friends about it. Let's keep growing this thing. Take it higher, further, faster. And uh, thanks for hanging around. We'll see you next week where we hopefully, barring Robbie's health, rank and reflect on Quantumania next week here on Friends from Work.